Criminology is a true crime podcast that may contain discussion about violent or disturbing topics. Listener discretion is advised. like to welcome everyone to episode three season three of criminology this episode starts the second half of the ted bundy story and man morph there is a lot still to cover in these last couple episodes and we just want to take a minute to remind you that our book based on season two of the podcast titled criminology true crime podcast presents the case of the golden state killer is available for pre-order and it's due to be released August 29th. You can find it by heading over to our publisher, Wild Blue Press, or by going to Amazon. And I think people are really going to like this more if it's a departure from the first book that we put out. This is written in true book form. This is not a transcript of the podcast. Now, there's a lot of the same information, but it it reads like like a true book. All right, Morph, we've got some Patreon shout-outs, so let's give those. We had Wendy Sanders, Oliver Bingham, Harrison Christie, Kevin Burbridge, Donald Cake, Dusty Thorhauer, Mary Lane Lemon, Jamie Gothrow, Eric Toey, Jamie Cuthbertson, Elizabeth Sirk, Nick Maitland, David Nelson, Brian Gimboris, Laurel Knapp, The Minds of Madness, who we both love, Morph. That's a great podcast. If people aren't listening to that, they should be. Tyler and Beck do an amazing job. You know, they also support me, Morph, on True Crime All the Time. I support their podcast on Patreon. It's just, it's kind of cool for podcasters to support each other. We had Jennifer Carroll, Tiffany Thompson, Jason Kay, Lynn Manias, Sarah Parkhurst, and Chris Buckle. Like we always say, more we appreciate all of that support. Not only the new people that have chosen to support us, but the people that continue to support us month after month. It's amazing. And it's not just the dollar amount, it's the thought and the the time that it takes to just do it. And to the people that haven't been able to or aren't in the position to just sharing the podcast on social media uh, in different groups, that goes a long ways, too. So any way that you can support us, we definitely appreciate it. All right. Before we get into episode three, let's recap where we left off in episode two of our Bundy coverage. Ted Bundy's murder spree was starting to unravel. He had been picked out of a lineup by Carol Durange, who had escaped from Bundy after he pretended to be a police officer And although they didn't have him on murder charges, he was facing aggravated kidnapping and attempted criminal assault. And we also discussed how several investigators in the Pacific Northwest, Jerry Thompson, Bob Keppel, Michael Fisher, had compared notes about unsolved murders. 
that they were investigating, and they all thought that Bundy may have been responsible for those. Bundy's aggravated kidnapping trial for Carol Durange began in Salt Lake City, Utah on February 23, 1976. Bundy was defended by John O'Connell, a lanky young bearded defense attorney, and prosecuted by David Yoakum. Judge Stuart M. Hansen Jr. presided over the trial. He was known for being a letter-of-the-law judge. Therefore, defense preferred him to reside over Bundy's trial. Due to all the publicity in the Salt Lake City area, Bundy and his defense elected to have no jury and to have a bench trial instead. Judge Hansen would be the only person in the room deciding Ted's fate. Admittedly, Hansen hadn't seen much of the publicity surrounding Bundy's arrest, so the defense team felt he was more likely to be fair. Bundy showed up to court tanned and in good spirits after a short skiing vacation. There was additional security due to the packed courtroom. Both Johnny and Louise Bundy were there to support their son. Debbie Kent's and Melissa Smith's parents were also in attendance. When the courtroom was finally settled, Judge Hansen made sure Bundy voluntarily waived the jury trial and understood that he, as the judge, would be the deciding factor in the case. Bundy understood and waived his right to a jury trial. Prosecutor Yoakum reviewed Carol DeRanche's kidnapping and the burglary findings in Ted's car when he was arrested. But it was Carol DeRanche's testimony on the stand that was the most damning to Ted Bundy. On November 8, 1974, she left her job at Mountain Bell at 6 p.m. She drove to Fashion Place Mall in Murray, Utah to find a birthday present. Carol met her cousin Joanne and friend Lynn Turner. As she stood in front of Walden Books, she was approached by Bundy, and he was wearing a mustache at the time. He asked her if she had a car parked in the Sears parking lot. When she affirmed that she did, he asked her to come with him because someone had been seen trying to break into it. Carol told the jury that he was wearing a blue-gray suit and announced himself as Officer Roseland. She said when they returned to the car, it was still locked and nothing was missing. Bundy led her behind the mall to the back entrance of a laundromat, which he told her was a police substation. But when Bundy tried the door and found that it was locked, Durant agreed to return to the main police station with him. When they got to his car... She noted it was a poorly kept Volkswagen Buck. As the trial wound to its eventual conclusion, Bundy and his attorney were in high spirits. They didn't feel the case had been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. However, on March 1, 1976, Judge Hansen found Bundy guilty of kidnapping and assault. On June 30th, Bundy was sentenced to a minimum of 1 to 15 years in Utah State Prison. Bundy was shipped off to do his time. But in October, he was discovered crouching in the prison yard with roadmaps, a social security card, and airline schedules. He spent several weeks in solitary confinement as punishment. Ted was then charged with the Colorado murder of Karen Campbell and extradited to Aspen to face further charges. But the extradition did not go smoothly. Bundy escaped from custody in Aspen, Colorado on July 7, 1977. He was supposed to be researching information for his trial in the murder of Karen Campbell, but he jumped from the second story law library 
and hightailed it out of the area on a sprained ankle. He was able to steal a car, but he didn't get very far before the car broke down. He got lost and he wandered the area before locating a cabin nearby and breaking in. Ted spent the night in this cabin and tried to recuperate. Before leaving in the morning, he stole food, clothes, and a hunting knife, and then headed back out into the countryside. Three days later, after continuously wandering in the area, Bundy broke into a trailer and stole a ski parka and more food. Now, keep in mind that he was doing all of this with a sprained ankle. This is a guy that definitely did not want to be caught and taken back into custody. But he somehow missed two trails that would have led him out of the town of Aspen. And instead, he just kept circling the area, trying to figure out where he was. On July 13th, he headed back toward Aspen and stole a car. Bundy was later discovered in this car by police and arrested. He had been on the run for six days. He was in pain and he was exhausted. But this ordeal that he had gone through trying to evade police, it's not going to stop him from attempting escape again. After Bundy's failed escape from prison in July of 1977, he succeeded in breaking out of the Garfield County Jail in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, on December 30th, 1977. Ted had been fasting and had lost approximately 30 pounds. He was able to squeeze out of a hole in the ceiling of his jail cell. Inmates who were housed near his cell had been telling guards that they could hear someone climbing around above them, but the guards didn't follow up on the tips. Once outside the prison... Bundy hitched a ride to the airport and stole some credit cards to catch a flight to Chicago. After a short trip to Ann Arbor, Michigan, he found his way down to Georgia, then to the sunny state of Florida. And once he got there, it wasn't long before his murderous cravings began to resurface, and he made his way to Tallahassee. Once in Tallahassee, Bundy rented a room in a boarding house using the name Chris Hagen. He stole a television and some other items he felt he needed. He visited a local bar repeatedly and managed to steal several credit cards from patrons at the bar. This bar was very close to Florida State University, and it didn't take Bundy long to notice the attractive young women bustling back and forth from the campus. After a week in Florida, on the night of January 15, 1978, Bundy entered the Chi Omega sorority house at Florida State University. He entered during the early hours, but he had been watching this area for a while, and he noted that the rear door wasn't locked, and his sole goal that night was to make up for lost time and to kill as many women as possible. Bundy armed himself with a piece of firewood and entered the room of Margaret Bowman. As she slept... He beat her and garroted her with a nylon stocking. Then he went into Lisa Levy's room and beat her, strangled her, tore one of her nipples, left a deep bite impression in her left buttocks, then sexually assaulted her with a hairspray bottle. Bundy found his way into the next bedroom and broke Kathy Kleiner's jaw with the firewood and lacerated her shoulder. Her roommate Karen Chandler was given a concussion 
while Ted rained down blows on her face. It was later determined that she suffered a broken jaw, a crushed finger, and she was missing teeth. All four attacks happened in fewer than 15 minutes, with approximately 30 potential witnesses nearby who heard nothing. The only person on the premises who noted anything unusual was sorority sister Nita Neary, who had just returned to the house and witnessed a man quickly leaving in the dark. After Bundy left the sorority house, this is still very early in the morning. He broke into a nearby basement apartment where he attacked another Florida State University student. Cheryl Thomas was left with a fractured jaw and skull, a dislocated shoulder, and permanent deafness. And these horrendous injuries would make her unable to follow her dream of becoming a professional dancer. And this was due to the fact that her equilibrium was severely damaged by this attack. Bundy left behind a pantyhose mask on Cheryl's bed. Forensics determined that two hairs in the pantyhose were microscopically similar to Bundy's coarse, dark hair. A semen stain was also left on Cheryl's bed. The next month, on February 9th, 1978, Bundy drove to Lake City, Florida in a stolen van. And this is where he lured 12-year-old Kimberly Leach away from her middle school. He savagely raped her in the back of the van and then brutally killed the 12-year-old. Her body was not found until April 7th in a pig shed in Sewanee River State Park. The medical examiner determined she probably died during intercourse. It was also said that she had, quote, homicidal violence in her neck region. After murdering Leach, Bundy returned to Tallahassee. On February 15, 1978, Bundy was trolling around Pensacola looking for a place to sleep. He pulled into the rear of Oscar's restaurant and kept his lights on. Pensacola police officer David Lee saw him and watched as he slowly pulled out of the parking lot. Lee ran the plate on the car and found it was stolen. Bundy was driving slowly when the officer turned on his blue lights and a short chase ensued. Finally, the stolen VW bug came to rest and Lee exited his patrol car. The officer held Bundy at gunpoint demanding that Bundy exit the Volkswagen. He had to repeat himself several times before Bundy finally complied. Officer Lee looked at the passenger side of the car and called out to determine if anyone else was in there. As he was putting handcuffs on Bundy, he got distracted, and Bundy kicked his feet out from under him. He struck the officer and took off running. Officer Lee demanded that Bundy stop running and fired a warning shot. Bundy turned around and looked at the cuff on his wrist while continuing to flee. Lee fired his gun again, and Bundy fell face down. The officer thought that he had been hit, but Bundy started fighting him again when Lee tried to restrain him. Ted cried out for help and tried to wrestle Lee's gun from him. Finally, the officer got the upper hand and finished handcuffing Bundy. This account is detailed in the book, Ted Bundy, A Visual Timeline. Ted initially refused to tell police his name. But after three days, he gave up and admitted he was Ted Bundy. By that point, Florida police had been talking with various departments throughout the U.S. When Washington and Colorado authorities explained who he was, 
Florida officers finally realized who they had on their hands. The police linked Bundy to the sorority murders. The attorneys representing Mr. Bundy have decided that they do not want another bond hearing. So he will be held without bond. We have received a hold order from Colorado and Salt Lake City, Utah. Bundy is being guarded in a second floor cell and last night was taken out for another session with Tallahassee Detective Sergeant Ben Rosar. We've heard his life story, said Rosar. He's telling us everything, but what we want to know. I'm holding my breath. What they want to know about is the January 15th strangling of two co-eds and the beatings of three others here at the Chi Omega sorority house on the Florida State University campus. Bundy is the prime suspect because of the nature of the murders, brutal sexual assaults. Many of the 21 credit cards Bundy had with him were stolen in Sherrod's, a bar next to the Chi Omega sorority on Jefferson Avenue. Instead of extraditing Bundy back to Colorado, where he would have been tried for Karen Campbell's murder, Florida investigators tried him there instead. When the sorority murder's indictment was read, Bundy used the press conference to grandstand and tried to steal the spotlight, interrupting the reading of the indictment. What do we have here, Ken? Let's see. You always say an indictment, all right? Why don't you read it to me? You're on ballot for election, aren't you? Mr. Mr. Bundy you got it, didn't you? Mr. Bundy you told me that you told him that you were going to get me. He said he was going to get me. Okay, you've got the indictment. It's all you're going to get. Let's read it. Let's go. Theodore Robert Bundy, you are charged. Indictment. Two counts burglary. Two counts murder in the first degree, three counts attempted murder in the first degree. Design or intent to affect the death of said Lisa Lee. My chance to talk to the press. Contrary to section 78204 Florida statute. I'll plead not guilty right now. Bundy's first trial in Florida for the murders of Lisa Levy and Margaret Bowman started on June 25th, 1979. We talked a lot about some of Bundy's early victims and how by the time police had found them, their bodies had decomposed. This wasn't the case in the murders at the Chi Omega sorority house in Florida. These women were discovered very quickly and their bodies bore the evidence of Bundy's savagery on Lisa Levy. Police identified a bite mark left behind on her left buttock. This evidence would later be used to convict Bundy in the first of his two trials in the Sunshine State. On January 7, 1980, Bundy's trial for the murder of 12-year-old Lake City resident Kimberly Leach began in Orlando. Bundy had kidnapped Leach on February 9, 1978. Bundy was convicted on February 7, 1980 after only eight hours of deliberation. He was found guilty on the testimony of a witness who saw him with Leach outside of the stolen van. Also, fibers found in the stolen van and on Leach's body were matched to fibers on Bundy's jacket that Bundy was wearing when he was arrested. On February 10, 1980, at the sentencing, Bundy gave this statement. I'm not asking for mercy, for I find it somewhat absurd to ask for mercy for something I did not do. So I will be tortured for and will suffer for and receive the pain for that act. But I will not share the burden. 
After Bundy's statement to the court, Judge Edward Cowart made one of his own to Bundy. This court, independent of, but in agreement with, the advisory sentence rendered by the jury does hereby impose the death penalty upon the defendant, Theodore Robert Bundy. Then, in an unexpected move, perhaps an afterthought, Cowart stunned the courtroom with some parting words for Bundy. Take care of yourself, young man. Thank you. I, I say that to you sincerely. Take care of yourself. It's a tragedy for this court to see it's such a total waste, I think, of humanity that I've experienced in this court. You're a bright young man. You made a good lawyer. I'd love to have you practice in front of me, but you went another way, partner. And Morph, this is one of my favorite lines by a judge to a serial killer. This one has always stuck with me. Ted was sentenced to be executed by electrocution. When the sentence was given, Bundy stood up and shouted, tell the jury they were wrong. This is the death sentence that eventually would be carried out, ending Ted Bundy's life. Despite being a convicted murderer and all of the horrid details of what Bundy had done to so many women, Ted Bundy had numerous pen pals and visitors during his time in prison and on death row, and many of them were women. While he was on trial in Florida, women flocked from all over the area and neighboring states just to get a glance at him. During his trial, Throngs of young women, long hair parted in the middle to resemble his victims, came to get a glimpse of the former law student. Despite being present when photographs of Ted's bite mark on the buttock of the victim Lisa Levy were shown, these women still attempted to catch Bundy's eye to see if he would wave at them. And this is something I will never understand, Morph. Ever. But nightly updates were shown on the news about Bundy's trial, noting his status as a serial murderer. Each day, the courtroom is filled with spectators drawn by a fascination with Theodore Bundy himself or by the gruesome details of the crimes, bloodstained pillows, pictures of the murdered co-eds, evidence that the women were sexually abused. What is unusual to see is that many of the onlookers are women, young women, contemporaries of the five Florida State sorority sisters who were assaulted in their beds a year and a half ago. Every time he turns around, I kind of get that feeling, oh, no, you know, he's going to get me next. But yet yet you're fascinated by him. Very, very. Every night when I go to bed, I just, you know, I get very scared. I shut my door and lock him, you know. I'm not afraid of him. He just doesn't look like the type to kill somebody. You try to imagine yourself in his place to see how he's feeling looking at the pillows with blood stains and everything if, if he really did it or not the trial has drawn women from as far away as seattle where bundy is suspected of other sex murders why is this happening according to one psychiatrist it is a mixture of fear intrigue and in particular sexual attraction and uh, so yes i do think this is in an underlying sense a sexual attraction using that word very broadly for the moment but there's no question but what Violence does uh, quicken the pulse of many people and certainly of young women. The young women themselves aren't too sure what it is that attracts them to the trial. Are you a little scared when you look at him? Yes. It scares me to be in the same room with him, but I know there's other people in there. So. Why do you do it? I don't know. <laughs> 
Meanwhile, Bundy was receiving bags of letters and postcards from admirers around the country, and he reveled in this attention. In 1978, while Bundy was still on trial for murder, he rekindled a romance with a woman named Carol Boone, an old flame from Washington State. Carol described their first meeting, saying, I liked Ted immediately. We hit it off well. She moved to Florida to be near him and support him through his trials. Though they were denied marriage by Florida prison officials, the couple found a loophole in an old law on the books. The law dictated if a marriage proposal was made in court, the marriage was legal. When Bundy, who was representing himself at trial, put Carol on the stand as a character witness, he asked her to marry him. Carol, do you want to marry me? Yes. And I want to marry you? Yes. And I do want to marry <laughs> Carol accepted Ted's proposal, as crazy as that sounds, and their marriage was now binding. Bundy was legally married to Carol shortly before being convicted of murder. He even fathered a daughter with his wife while on death row, though her whereabouts are currently unknown. Carol decided to end the relationship in 1986. Whether Ted actually loved any of the women in his life is something that we'll never know. Based on what we do know of psychopaths, they're not capable of feeling love the way that most of us do. One thing we can say about Bundy is that women loved him and he loved their attention towards him. Ted was a murder addict and it's safe to say the only reason he didn't kill the women around him was so he wouldn't be caught. And we talked in an earlier episode about the fact that Bundy had considered killing Liz, his girlfriend, and her daughter. And while he may have thought about killing Liz's daughter, in late 1981, Ted had a daughter of his own when Carol Boone gave birth, and the couple named the child Rose Bundy. She was the spitting image of her father. Rayford Prison does not allow conjugal visits. So a lot of people have posited theories regarding how Carol got pregnant in the first place. The most popular theory is that Bundy bribed a prison guard who allowed him to have a conjugal visit with his wife, either behind a vending machine or in a bathroom. One plausible theory came from a comment made by a Rayford prison guard who was working in the prison while Bundy was there. He said that Carol may have passed Bundy a condom through a kiss and he passed it back the same way with his sperm inside it. If this scenario is true, it's even more unbelievable that someone would take these measures to try and conceive a child of a monster like Ted Bundy. It seems strange that Bundy would want to have a family while he was in prison after having been so reticent to have one in his earlier days. There could be a couple of reasons why he wanted a wife and child. First, he wanted to appear normal to the general public. There was nothing more normal to him than a family. He even told FBI profiler Robert Ressler that he dreamed of having a perfect wife and perfect family before his killing spree began. Another reason was to make himself more sympathetic to those who were planning his execution in Florida. It's ironic that Ted Bundy's child was a girl. Bundy admitted to killing more than 30 women during the time that he murdered. 
He stole the daughters of a myriad of parents, and here he was, the father to a daughter himself. One can only imagine what life would have been like if Bundy had been free from that point on. Previous to Ted's execution, Carol left him and changed their daughter's name. No one knows if Rose is aware of her parentage, but it's been theorized that she probably knows some of her father's family. It would be hard to keep the secret from her in that situation. Crime writer Anne Roll once noted that the young woman, who would be in her 30s now, was doing well and succeeding in the world. By 1984, still on Florida's death row, Bundy found himself fascinated by the recent murder spree occurring in his home state of Washington. The Green River Killer was actively pursuing sex workers that populated the SeaTac Strip, running between Seattle and Tacoma, Washington. In the early years of his crime spree, the women's bodies were found dumped in and around the Green River. Ted followed the stories on the news and in the paper during the early 80s and made a bold decision. He contacted the Green River Task Force in an effort to help them catch the killer. Presenting himself as a consultant of sorts, Bundy wrote to Seattle detective Bob Keppel, and Keppel could hardly believe what he was reading. The very same detective who worked diligently to put Ted behind bars a decade before was being presented with the idea of Bundy as a resource in catching another serial killer. After making some plans and working out an agenda with Dave Reichert, the lead detective on the Green River Task Force, both men flew to the small town of Stark, where Bundy was on Florida's death row. The idea was simple, to let Bundy talk, and talk he did. If there was anything Ted Bundy loved, it was talking about himself. Bundy shared his theories about the identity of the killer he simply called the Riverman. He suggested having a slasher film festival to draw out the killer so the task force could take pictures of some of the men entering the movie theater. He also advised them that the killer was most likely returning to the scenes of his crimes to retrieve evidence and to move the bodies, just as Bundy had done himself. Though little if any material gained from their various conversations helped catch the Green River Killer, Investigators were able to gain deeper insight into the mind of a serial murderer. In 2001, Gary Ridgway was arrested and later convicted in the deaths of 48 women in the Green River series. It was determined that Ridgway had been returning to his crime scenes over and over, just as Bundy had predicted. For three years, rookie defense attorney Polly Nelson was compelled to appeal the death sentence of the man she later described as the devil. In February 1986, the unexperienced lawyer was asked to apply for a stay of execution by the upper management at her law firm. She was doing this work pro bono. Bundy had been given an execution date and Nelson had 10 days to have it delayed. She agreed to take the job but later admitted she had no idea what she had gotten herself into. This was not a man who would help her save himself. For one thing, he had been offered the chance to plead guilty, but turned it down. His prior attorneys had tried to talk him into pleading not guilty by reason of insanity, 
And Ted was insulted that anyone would think he was crazy and rejected even the thought of that type of plea. Speaking to Bundy on the phone, Nelson noted how soft-spoken and non-threatening he was. His demeanor wasn't at all what she expected, though she acknowledged he was a convicted murderer. She couldn't think about that when she was filing motions with the Florida courts. She had to stay focused and do her duty of trying to save a man's life. It would turn out that Bundy's case would be the only case she would work on for three years. During the time they worked together, she was able to secure delays in two of his three execution dates. But she was not successful the third time around, and an execution date was set for January 24th, 1989 at 7 a.m. Prison officials detailed very specifically how the execution would be carried out. Let's go back to about five when he's offered the last meal. Uh, following that, he'll, he'll be uh, the top of his head and his lower right leg will be shaved. He'll be showered and dressed in a dark blue suit, white shirt. Traditionally, he meets with the superintendent for a few minutes prior to the execution. About 10 minutes to 7, the witnesses will be led into the witness room. There will be 12 citizen witnesses and uh, 12 media witnesses. Those have already been appointed. At uh, about 1 or 2 minutes prior to 7 o'clock, they'll begin leading him at 30 feet down the hall to the execution chamber. They'll be strapped in, asked if he has any last words. That will be made available, of course, to the people in the witness room. At that point, they'll attach a metal cap and a black veil over his face. The superintendent, Tom Barton, will check by telephone with the governor's office to see if there's any last stays or any reasons why the execution should not be carried out. If not, he will turn, and the executioner, who remains anonymous, will receive a nod from the superintendent. The executioner will then turn the switch. And uh, for a two-minute cycle of voltage, uh, the execution will be carried out. There is no set time on it. Uh, the longest any of those have usually run is four or five minutes. It's 2,000 volts, 14 amps. Could he talk as long as he wants to, though? No, he cannot. There is a time limit? There is a time limit because, as I said, the execution has been set for 7 o'clock. Generally, they're carried out anywhere between 10 and 15 minutes after 7. As is tradition in many countries, in the United States, prisoners on death row can request a last meal before they are executed. In the event that they don't choose a special meal, they're given a standard meal. Each state generally has a limit on the amount of money they will allow for the meal itself. Florida currently allows a $40 limit and Oklahoma limits it to $15 per meal. Traditionally, the last meal was thought to absolve the executioner of guilt in the death of the criminal. The promise was meant to keep the deceased from haunting the person who put the guilty party to death. And I don't know about you, Mike, but it seems crazy to spend that much time and care to give someone like Ted Bundy a special last meal. It's hard to believe after he took the lives of so many women who never got to choose their last meal. 
Yeah, I have to agree with you more, you know, covering a lot of different cases and hearing about these brutal killers last meals, especially before they changed it. You know, it used to be that, you know, some of these people could ask for whatever they wanted. And I never understood that. Ted was scheduled to be executed at 7 a.m. So just before 5 a.m., he was given a medium rare steak, eggs over easy, hash browns, toast, milk, coffee, juice, butter, and jelly. Now, on the scale of last meals, that's not too exorbitant. There have been some, though, that have just blown me away. But he didn't eat this meal, so it went to waste anyway. The night before Bundy was executed, he spoke with his mother twice, who told him, quote, you'll always be my precious son. He attempted to contact his estranged wife, Carol, but she refused to speak with him. Bundy's cell was only 30 feet away from the prison's electric chair. And that maybe, Morph, was the cause of his loss of appetite. It was also reported that Bundy had been up all night weeping, crying, and praying. When guards made their way into Bundy's cell to take him to the electric chair, he refused to get up and was visibly upset. After a few moments, he composed himself and cooperated as he made the 30-foot walk to his death. Shortly after Bundy was strapped into the electric chair, he was asked if he had any last words. Bundy addressed his lawyer and his minister and said, Jim and Fred, I'd like you to give my love to my family and friends. After making his final statement to the 42 witnesses before him, a strap was pulled across his mouth and chin. Then the metal skull cap was bolted into place and a black hood was pulled over his head. A button was pushed to release 2,000 volts of electricity through Bundy's body. A quick puff of smoke and the brief scent of burning hair and flesh, and it was over. Ted Bundy was dead. Witnesses recalled, after the fact, the details of the execution. Somewhere around 6.20 or 6.30, the lights in the prison went off, and that's the sign when they switched to the generator. At, at some point, they brought Ted in, and he was being supported by the guards, by the guards sort of walked in. And his knees just buckled. I mean, the, the guards had to hold him up. And then he sort of got his composure back a little bit right after that, and he sat down. They then began to prepare him for the execution, strapping him in. And he looked at everybody in the room, one by one, going went through everybody's eyes, trying to see who we knew or who we remembered. And the only person he smiled at was the prosecutor, and it was kind of, hi. And then they uh, put the headgear on, put the mask over his face, and executed him. Uh, and you see the body tense up like that, and then it sort of loosens up. And then after a little while, it'll tense up again when they hit him with the second jolt of electricity. Uh, there is a smell of burning flesh in the room, uh, and just a light wisp of smoke from the leg, as I recall. As far as uh, the eyewitness account goes, Ted Bundy was very shaken when he was brought into the room. He needed assistance. Uh, but once he was placed into the chair, they began to put the straps around his ankles and his legs and his uh, waist area. He began to regain his composure. Matter of fact, he made eye contact with quite a few of the witnesses that were in the room and visibly spoke to them. I think those were people that he probably recognized who had served on the case for over 11 years. 
The only words that he did say at all was the fact that give my love to my family and to my friends, which I found somewhat odd. Uh, and the only thing I guess that went through my mind was there are so many family members and friends that would never receive love due to the numbers of people that he did kill. Considering Bundy could have said anything at the end of his life, it's interesting that he expressed only his love to those he knew. This was in opposition to someone like John Wayne Gacy, for example, whose last words were, kiss my ass. It seems by the time his third death warrant was issued in 1989, Bundy had run out of steam to fight for his life. He had become complacent and had accepted his inevitable death. And it probably also speaks to Bundy's constant need to be seen as normal in some way. The mask he showed those around him was only ever removed when he killed his victims. Bundy's desire to have outsiders view him as just another regular guy was so strong that even his last words appeared to be something a quote-unquote normal guy would say. The words were calculating and manipulative even as he was preparing to die. He never consciously let the mask slip. And this was just another example of his desire for control. His own attorney, Polly Nelson, described him as, quote, the very definition of heartless evil. Reminiscent of the rowdy mob carrying pitchforks and fire, pursuing Frankenstein's monster, a crowd of approximately 500 people formed outside of Rayford Prison in Florida, anxiously awaiting word that Bundy was dead. It was almost a party-like atmosphere, the kind of scene you might expect to see from tailgaters at a football game. When Bundy's death was finally announced, the crowd cheered, and some of them shouted, Burn, Bundy, burn. Others sang, hugged, or banged on frying pans they brought along. The prosecutor against Bundy in the Kimberly Leach case had this to say about the event. The thing that kept going through my mind was the awful crime scene I saw 11 years ago. I kept saying to myself that this is where it started and this is where it ends. Police officers keeping the peace outside of the prison stated they wish they could be the ones flipping the switch. And they commented that they felt no compassion for the killer whatsoever. Jim Sewell, police chief of Gulfport, Florida, said, regardless of what Bundy did, he was still a human being. But having said that, he also admitted that he felt a great relief that Bundy was dead. James Dobson, who interviewed Bundy the night before his death, said he wept several times while talking to me. He expressed great regret and remorse for what he had done for the families that were hurting. There's a myth that Bundy was executed by a female guard at the prison, but there's no information about who pushed the final button. At 7.16 a.m., Ted Bundy was officially declared dead at the age of 42 an age that none of his known victims ever got the chance to make it to. Shortly after Bundy was declared dead, 
as his body was being removed from the prison and transported by hearse for funeral preparation, the crowd outside once again celebrated the final leg of the journey to justice and they erupted cheering for the hearse as it drove by them. Sometime after his execution, photos of Bundy's body post-mortem were released. And in these pictures, you can see, you know, his hair was shaved. He had all types of different marks around the top of his head. It even looked to me, Morph, as though he had some burns on his neck. It almost looked like a cigarette burn. Yeah, the pictures are pretty gruesome, although not overly gory. But they do show the extent of the damage that was done to his skin and head area following the execution. Many people and experts have debated as to whether Bundy ever felt any real guilt or remorse for his actions. Or if he merely felt sorry for himself. Guilt is a cognitive or an emotional experience that occurs when a person believes or realizes that he or she has compromised his or her own standards of conduct or has violated a universal moral standard and bears significant responsibility for that violation. Guilt is a feeling that most individuals experience in their lifetime. Most members of society learn to experience vicarious pain while young and they develop into adults who sympathize with others in pain. By learning this behavior, the idea of harming others through violence starts to feel uncomfortable. That said, it would be unsurprising to learn that Ted Bundy did not experience remorse. He saw guilt as a sign of weakness and judged those who exhibited guilt on any level. Bundy famously once said he felt sorry for people who felt remorse. Psychopaths like Bundy usually lack guilt and empathy. They compartmentalize their feelings and view the world from a purely narcissistic viewpoint. Anything and everything around them is theirs to use and control. Many psychopaths live in their own fantasy world. A key component to psychopaths committing crimes is that they often feel entitled. You know, in this way, the individual feels that he or she deserves what they want, regardless of any laws. Most psychopaths understand the difference between right and wrong, but they don't feel that the rules apply to them. They are easily able to minimize their effect on humanity when embarking on a crime spree. Guilt rarely plays a part in their crimes. Ted Bundy once said, guilt. It's a mechanism we use to control people. It's an illusion. It's a kind of social control mechanism, and it's very unhealthy. The language he uses gives the impression that he at least understood how guilt worked and how it affected people. Unfortunately, he used his knowledge of guilt to manipulate his victims and others around him. The women who fell for his wounded law student routine felt they should help him carry his books to his car. 
And Bundy knew exactly how to control the situation to benefit his interests and was never hindered by feelings of regret. A lack of empathy combined with superficial charm guaranteed a pool of victims for a sophisticated serial criminal. And we again have to wonder if Bundy's lack of regret or lack of empathy stemmed from events in his childhood. Ted Bundy was a true lust killer. Some of the characteristics of lust killers include removing the clothing of their victims, posing bodies in sexually suggestive manners, insertion of foreign objects into their vaginas or anuses, consumption of blood, consumption of flesh, necrophilia, and that they live in a fantasy world. We see many of these features in Bundy, starting with necrophilia. Ted Bundy was an admitted necrophile. He confessed that he often left his victims' bodies in the outdoors and returned to them many times to rape their corpses. Bundy went back over and over until decomposition and animal activity made it impossible to violate the bodies any longer. When Lisa Levy's body was found after Bundy attacked her, a hairspray bottle was found in her vagina. Perhaps Bundy was unable to sustain an erection, or maybe he was in too much of a hurry to rape the young woman. We'll never know. But the insertion of a foreign object is common in sexual serial killings. Bundy had also bitten off Levy's nipple and left a huge bite mark on her buttock. In fact, using a dental impression of his teeth, prosecutors in Bundy's Florida trial were able to match his teeth to the bite mark. Now, he wasn't known as a cannibal, but it is possible that Ted Bundy enjoyed eating parts of his victim in an attempt to connect with them. Like most killers, Ted didn't fit in socially with his peers, so he retreated more and more into a fantasy life. Early in his killing career, he was able to juggle a relationship, a job, and college classes. As time went on, everything in his life suffered, except his life of depravity and murder. Bundy described his fantasy life as marrying his ideal woman coming home to her after a day of work, and living an ideal family life with her. It's probable that he was trying to live out that fantasy with each victim when he returned to their bodies and spent time with them. Bundy even talked to the women, washed their hair, and applied makeup to them. By this time, his relationship was suffering, and he had dropped out of college. The unfortunate thing about a fantasy is that no matter how good it seems in your head, it's never fully achievable in reality. Ted Bundy was a complicated person, to say the least. He was a consummate narcissist. He was bipolar. He had antisocial personality disorder. And he clearly had no empathy towards his victims. He once told police, I'm the most cold-hearted son of a bitch you'll ever meet. Bundy was interviewed on the night before his execution by Focus on the Family's Dr. James Dobson. Bundy's crimes and the dangers of pornography were addressed during this conversation. Bundy discussed how pornography forced him down a dark path to murder and mayhem 
And their interaction gives the public a rare chance to see beneath the carefully constructed mask of a psychopath. This is a lengthy segment, but it's filled with valuable information from Ted Bundy just hours before he was put to death. You know, if I were able to ask you the questions that are being asked out there, mm-hmm. uh, one of the most important as you come down to perhaps your final hours, are you thinking about all those victims out there and their families well, who are so wounded, you know, years later, their lives have not returned to normal. They will never return to normal. Absolutely. Are, are you carrying that load, that weight? Is the remorse there? I know that people will accuse me of being self-serving, but we're beyond that now. I mean, I'm just telling you how I feel. But through God's help, I've been able to come to the point where I've... Much too late, but better late than never, feel the hurt and the pain that I am responsible for. Yes, absolutely. In the past few days, myself and a number of investigators have been talking about unsolved cases murders that I was involved in and it's hard to it's hard to talk about all these years later because it revives in me all those terrible feelings and those thoughts that I have steadfastly and and, and diligently dealt with I think successfully with the love of God and yet it's reopened that and I felt the pain and I felt the horror again of all that and I can only hope that those who I've harmed, those who I've caused so much grief, even if they don't believe my expression of sorrow and remorse, will believe what I'm saying now, that there is loose in their towns and their communities, people like me today, whose dangerous impulses are being fueled day in and day out by violence in the media in its various forms, particularly sexualized violence. And what scares me, and let's come into the present now, because what I'm talking about happened 30, 20, 30 years ago, that is, in my formative stages. And what scares and appalls me, Dr. Dobson, is what I see what's on cable TV. Some of the movies, I mean, some of the violence in the movies uh, that come into homes today with stuff that they, that they wouldn't show in X-rated adult theaters 30 years ago. This stuff... The slasher movies that you're talking about. That stuff is, I'm telling you, from personal experience, the most, that is graphic violence on screen particularly as it gets into the home to children who may be unattended or or unaware that they may be a Ted Bundy who has that that vulnerability to that that predisposition to be influenced by that kind of behavior, by that kind of of, of movie, that kind of violence. There are kids sitting out there switching the TV dial around and come upon these movies late at night or I don't know when they're on, but they're on and any kid can watch them. It's scary when I think what would have happened to me if I had seen. I'm scary enough. I mean, that I just ran into stuff outside the home, but to, to, to know that children are watching that kind of thing today, 
or can pick up their phone and dial away for it or send away for it. Uh, can you help me understand this desensitization process that took place? Uh, what was going on in your mind? Well, by desensitization, I, I describe it in specific terms is that each time I'd harm someone, each time I'd kill someone, there'd be an enormous amount, uh, uh, especially at first, uh, enormous amount of, of, of horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. Now, believe me, I didn't... The unique thing about how this worked, Dr. Dobson, is that I still felt in my regular life the full range of, of guilt and, and uh, remorse about other things, uh, regret and... Uh, but you had this compartmentalized... This compartmentalized, very well-focused, uh, 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 very sharply focused area where I, it was like a black hole. It was like a, you know, like a crack and everything that fell into that crack just disappeared. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, it does. Uh, one of the, the final uh, murders that you committed, of course, uh, was apparently little Kimberly Leach, 12 years of age. Uh, I think the, the public outcry is greater there because an innocent child was taken from a, from a playground. What did you feel after that? What was there? Were there the normal emotions three days later? Where were you, Ted? I... I can't really talk about that right now. That's weird. That's too painful. I would like to uh, like to be able to convey to you what that that uh, that experience is like, but I can't. Uh, I won't okay. be able to talk about that. Okay. I can't begin to understand. Well, I can try, but I'm, I'm aware that I can't begin to understand the pain that the parents of these, of these children that I have, and these young women that I have harmed feel. And I can't restore really much to them, if anything. I won't pretend to, and I don't even expect them to forgive me, and I'm not asking for it. The, that kind of forgiveness is of God, and if they have it, they have it. If they don't, well, maybe they'll find it someday. Do you deserve the punishment the state has inflicted upon you? <laughs> That's a very good question. And I'll answer it very, very honestly. I, I don't want to die. I'm not going to kid you. I'll kid, kid you not. Um, I deserve certainly the, the most extreme punishment society has and I deserve I think society deserves to be protected from me and from others like me that's for sure um, I think what I what I hope will come of our discussion is I think society deserves to be protected from itself because because of we as, as we've been talking there are there are forces that loosen in in this country particularly, again, uh, this kind of violent pornography, uh, where on the one hand, well-meaning, decent people will condemn behavior of a Ted Bundy while they're walking past a 
a, a magazine rack full of the very kinds of things that send young kids down the road to be Ted Bundy's. That's the irony. We're talking here not just about more. We're talking. I'm, what I'm talking about is going beyond retribution, which is what people want with me. Going beyond retribution and punishment, because there is no way in the world that killing me is going to restore uh, those beautiful children to their parents and 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 correct. And, and, and soothe the pain. But I'll tell you, there are lots of other kids playing in streets around this country today who are going to be dead tomorrow and the next day and the next day and next month because other young people are reading the kinds of things and seeing the kinds of things that are available in the media today. Ted, as you would imagine, there's tremendous cynicism about you on the outside, and I suppose for good reason. Uh -huh. I'm not sure that there's anything that you could say that people would uh, would believe. Some people would believe. Yeah. And uh, and yet, you told me last night, and I have heard this through our mutual friend John Tanner, that you have uh, accepted the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and uh, are a follower and a believer in Him. Do you draw strength from that uh, as you approach these final hours? I do. I can't say that uh, it's going to be being easy. in the, the valley of the shadow of death is is something that I've become all that accustomed to, and that I'm you know, and that I'm strong and uh, uh, nothing's bothering me. Uh, listen, it's no fun. It's mm -hmm. it's it, you know it's it's uh, it's gets kind of lonely, and yet I have to remind myself that the, every one of us. Uh, <laughs> will go through this someday yes. in one way or another so and, and, man. and countless uh, millions who have walked this earth before us have so this is just an experience which we all share and yeah right on. Uh, i grew up in a wonderful home with two dedicated and loving parents uh, one of uh, five brothers and sisters a uh, home where we as, our, as children were the focus of, of my parents' lives, where we regularly attended church, uh, two Christian parents who did not drink, they did not smoke, there was no gambling, there was no physical abuse or fighting in the home. I'm not saying this was leave it to beaver. It wasn't a perfect home. Well, no, I don't know that such a home exists, but it was a fine, solid Christian home, and nobody, uh, I hope no one will try to take the easy way out and to try to blame or otherwise accuse my, my family of contributing to this because I know, and I'm trying to tell you as honestly as I know how, what happened, and I think this is a message I'm going to get across. But as a young, a young boy, and I mean the boy of 12 or 13, certainly, uh, that I encountered outside the home again uh, in... Um, the local grocery store, the local uh, uh, drugstore, the softcore pornography, what people call softcore. Um, but as I think I, I explained to you last night, Dr. Dobson, in an anecdote, that as young boys do, we explored the, the back roads and sideways and byways of our neighborhood, and oftentimes people would dump the garbage and whatever they were cleaning out of their house, and from time to time we'd come across... So, pornographic books of a harder nature than uh, more uh, graphic, you might say, more explicit nature than we would encounter, let's say, in your local grocery store. 
And this also included such things as, let's say, detective magazines and uh, more hard Those that involved violence. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, I, I, and this is something I think I want to emphasize is the, 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 the most damaging uh, uh, kinds of pornography. And again, I'm talking from personal experience. Uh, hard, real, personal experience. The most damaging kinds of pornography are those that involve violence and, and sexual violence. Because the wedding of those two forces, as, as I know only too well, brings about behavior that is just, uh, is just uh, too terrible to describe. Now walk me through that. What was going on in your mind at that time? Okay, before we go any further, I think we're talking about something. We're talking about having reached a point or uh, a, a gray area that surrounded that point over a course of years. Uh, you don't remember years. how long that well, was? I, I would say, I would say a couple of years. And what was... I was dealing with there were very strong inhibitions against criminal behavior or violent behavior that had been conditioned into me, bred into me in my environment, in my neighborhood, in my church, uh, in my school. Uh, things which said, no, this is wrong. I mean, this, even to think of it is wrong, but it'll, certainly to do it is wrong. And you're on, well, I'm on that edge, and these, the last, the, the, you might say, the last vestiges of restraint. Uh, the barriers to actually doing something were being tested constantly and assault uh, assailed um, through the kind of fantasy life that was fueled largely by pornography. Do you remember what pushed you over that edge? Do you remember well, the decision to go for it? Do you remember where you decided to throw caution to the wind? Again, when you say pushed, I don't. Want, I, I know what you're saying. I don't want to infer yes, again. I, that, I understand that. That, that I was that, that, that I was clear. some helpless yeah. kind of a victim, and yet uh, we're talking about an influence which, that is, the influence of violent types of media and violent pornography, which had an was, was an indispensable link in the chain of behavior, the chain of events that led. To the behaviors, to the to the assaults, to the murders, and what and what have you. <laughs> it's a it's a very difficult thing to describe. Uh, we, uh, the the sensation of the the of of reaching that point where you, where I knew. It was like something had, say, snapped. That I knew that uh, that I couldn't control it anymore. That these barriers that that I had had been uh, I had learned as a child uh, that had been instilled in me were not enough to hold me back with respect to seeking out and, and harming somebody. Would it be accurate to call out a, a a frenzy, a sexual frenzy? Well, yes, it, that's one way to describe it—a compulsion, a a. a building up of, of this destructive energy. Uh, again, uh, I, uh, another factor here that we, I haven't mentioned is the use of alcohol. But I think that, that what alcohol did uh, in conjunction with, let's say, my exposure to pornography was alcohol reduced my inhibitions at the same time. Um, the, the, the fantasy life that was fueled by pornography 
eroded them further. In the early days, you were nearly always about half drunk when you did these things. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Uh, was that always true? I I would say that that was generally the case. Yeah. Almost with, with, without exception. All right. If I can understand it now, there's this battle going on within. There are the conventions that you've been taught. There's the right and wrong that you learned as a child. And then there is this this uh, unbridled passion uh, fueled by uh, your plunge into hardcore violent pornography and those things are at war with each other yes and then with the uh, alcohol diminishing the uh, the inhibitions uh, you let go well yes and to you can summarize it that way and that's accurate certainly and it, it just occurred to me that some people would, would say that, well, I, I've seen that stuff and it doesn't do anything to me. And I can understand that. I don't, virtually everyone uh, can be exposed to so-called pornography and while they're aroused to it to one degree or another, not go out and do anything wrong. Now, the addictions are like that. They affect some people more than they affect others. Well, but there is a percentage of people affected by hardcore pornography in a very violent way, and you're obviously one of them. That was a major component, and I don't know why I was vulnerable to it. All I know is that, uh, that, it, uh, that it had an, an impact on me uh, that was just so uh, central to the development of the violent behavior that I engaged in. Ted, after you come... I think, I mean, it's important to me and, uh, and that, people, that people believe what I'm saying, to tell you that, that I'm not blaming pornography and not saying that it caused me to go out and do certain things and I take full responsibility for whatever I've done and all the things that I've done that's not the question here the question and, and, and the issue is how this kind of literature contributed and helped mold and, and shape the kinds of violent behavior it fueled your fantasies well in, in the beginning it fuels this kind of thought process then it, at a certain time it's instrumental in what I would say crystallizing it, make it in, making it into something which is almost an, like a separate entity inside. And that in, at that point you're at the verge, or I was at the verge of acting out on, this, on this kind of, these kinds of things. Now I really want to understand that. You had gone about as far as you could go in your own fantasy life mm -hmm. with printed material. And you made, or printed and video or film Photo, or film magazines yeah. what have you yeah. and and then there was the urge to take that little step or big step over to a physical right. uh, event and it happens it, it happened in stages gradually it doesn't necessarily not to me at least happen overnight my experience with i say pornography generally but with pornography that deals on a violent level with the sexuality um is it once you become addicted to it, and I look at this as a kind of addiction, uh, like other kinds of addiction, of addiction, you keep, I would keep looking for more potent, more explicit, more graphic kinds of material. Like an addiction, you keep craving something which is harder, harder, something which, which gives you a greater uh, sense of, of, of uh, excitement. Until you reach the point where the pornography only goes so far. You reach that jumping off 
point where you begin to wonder if, if maybe actually doing it will give you that which is beyond just reading about it or looking at it. How long did you stay at that point before you actually assaulted someone? Well, yeah, you see, that is a very delicate point in my own development. Ted, it is uh, about 2.30 in the afternoon. Uh, you are scheduled to be executed tomorrow morning at 7 o'clock if you don't receive another stay. What is going through your mind? What thoughts have you had in these last few days? Well, I won't kid you to say that it's something that I feel that I am in control of or something that I've come to terms with, because I haven't. It's a moment-by-moment moment thing. Sometimes I feel very tranquil, and other times I don't feel tranquil at all. Um, what's going through my mind right now is to use the minutes and hours that I have left as fruitfully as possible and see what happens. Uh, it helps to, to live in the moment in the, in the essence that we use it productively. So I'm, right now I'm feeling calm and in large part because I'm here with you. For the record, you are guilty of killing many women and girls. Is yes, yes, that's true. Ted, how did it happen? Take me back. What are the antecedents of the behavior that we've seen? So much grief, so much sorrow, so much pain for so many people. Where did it start? How did this moment come about? That's the question of the hour, and, and one that not only people much more intelligent than I have been working on for for years, but one that I've been working on for years and trying to understand it. Is there enough time to explain it all? Uh, I don't know. I think I understand it, though. Understand what happened to me um, to the extent that I, I, I can see how certain feelings and ideas uh, developed in me to the point where I began to act out on them. Certain very violent and very destructive feelings. Let's go back then to those roots. First of all, you, as I understand it, were raised in what you consider to have been a healthy home. Absolutely. You were not physically abused. You were not sexually abused. You were not emotionally abused. No, no way. I grew up in a wonderful home with two dedicated and loving parents, one of five brothers and sisters. A home where we as, our, as children were the focus of, of my parents' lives, where we regularly attended church, two Christian parents who did not drink, they did not smoke, there was no gambling, there was no physical abuse or fighting in the home. I'm not saying this was leave it to beaver. It wasn't a perfect home. Well, no, I don't know that such a home exists, but it was a fine, solid Christian home, and nobody, uh, I hope no one will try to take the easy way out and to try to blame or otherwise accuse my, my family of contributing to this because uh, I know, and I'm trying to tell you as honestly as I know how, what happened, and I think this is a message I'm going to get across. But as a young, uh, a young boy, and I mean the boy of uh, 12 or 13, certainly, uh, that I encountered outside the home again uh, in... Um, the local grocery store, the local uh, uh, 
drugstore, the softcore pornography, what people call softcore. Um, but as I think I, I explained to you last night, Dr. Dobson, in an anecdote, as young boys do, we explored the, the back roads and sideways and byways of our neighborhood, and oftentimes people would dump the garbage and whatever they were cleaning out of their house, and from time to time we'd come across so, pornographic books of a harder nature than uh, more uh, graphic, you might say, more explicit nature than we would encounter, let's say, in your local grocery store. And this also included such things as, let's say, detective magazines and uh, more hard Those that involve violence. Yes, yes. And, I, I, and this is something I think I want to emphasize is the, 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 the most damaging uh, uh, kinds of pornography. And again, I'm talking from personal experience, uh, hard, real personal experience. The most damaging kinds of pornography are those that involve violence and, and sexual violence. Because the wedding of those two forces, as, as I know only too well, brings about behavior that is just, uh, mm -hmm. is just uh, too terrible to describe. Now walk me through that. What was going on in your mind at that time? Okay, before we go any further, I think you know, it's important to me and, uh, and that, people, that people believe what I'm saying, to tell you that, that I'm not blaming pornography and not saying that it caused me to go out and do certain things and I take full responsibility for whatever I've done and all the things that I've done that's not the question here the question and, and, and the issue is how this kind of literature contributed and helped mold and, and shape the kinds of violent behavior it fueled your fantasies well in, in the beginning it fuels this kind of thought process then, it, at a certain time, it's instrumental in what I would say crystallizing it, make it in, making it into something which is almost an, like a separate entity inside. And that in, at that point, you're at the verge, or I was at the verge of acting out on this on this kind of these kinds of things. Now, I really want to understand that you had gone about as far as you could go in your own fantasy life mm -hmm. with printed material, and you made or printed and video or film Photo, or film magazines yeah. what have you yeah. and and then there was the urge to take that little step or big step over to a physical right. uh, event and it happens it, it happened in stages gradually it doesn't necessarily not to me at least happen overnight my experience with i say pornography generally but with pornography that deals on a violent level with sexuality um, is that once you become addicted to it, and I look at this as a kind of addiction, uh, like other kinds of addiction, of addiction, you keep, I would keep looking for more potent, more explicit, more graphic kinds of material. Like an addiction, you keep craving something which is harder, harder, something which, which gives you a greater uh, sense of, of, of excitement. Until you reach the point where the pornography only goes so far, you reach that jumping off point where you begin to wonder if, if maybe actually doing it will give you that which is beyond just reading about it or looking at it. You can hear in that segment that it seems as if Ted Bundy blamed his desires and crimes mostly on pornography. But there are countless people in the history of mankind that were exposed to pornography and never became serial killers. 
So it may have helped fuel Bundy's crimes, but you cannot solely blame it for what he did to so many women. Hidden behind a carefully constructed facade, handsome young Ted was on the surface a joy to his neighbors and family members. He especially had a way with women. Many older female neighbors were charmed by him and let him borrow their cars or gave him money when he needed it. While watching him in videos or viewing pictures of him, it's easy to see how he could wrap members of his community around his finger. He was handsome and intelligent. He continually impressed local businessmen who thought he was a shoo-in as the next big attorney in the Seattle area. Utah Detective Jerry Thompson once described his mastery of persuasion by quipping, he could sell you a dead horse. However, underneath it all, he was a man obsessed with murder and violence. And that's what made Ted Bundy so dangerous. Unfortunately, those around him would find out about his predilections far too late. On January 4th, 1974, Ted Bundy's violent rampage began in the Pacific Northwest. He no longer held back his contempt for women, nor did he tamp down his sexual appetite. He brutalized his prey through decapitation and necrophilia, burying some of the bodies and leaving others out in the elements. His crime spree ended the lives of over 30 young women. These were mostly college students throughout the United States, ending in Florida with the murder of a 12-year-old girl. When he was arrested in 1978, after two prison escapes from Colorado, he told police, I'm the most cold-hearted motherfucker as you've ever put your fucking eyes on. I don't give a shit about those people. The monster had been caged, but not his animal instincts. Whether spurred on by pornography or an innate rage toward women, mental illness, or pure evil, the result remains the same. A young man from a working-class family was able to function in society while hiding a completely separate personality from those around him. The only people who saw his true anger were his victims, and they didn't survive the encounter. Ted Bundy was able to blend into society and gain the trust of his victims using his charm and good looks. And as a result, he became one of the deadliest and most infamous serial killers in U.S. history. All right, Morf, this is a good place to wrap up episode three of our Ted Bundy season. But we're coming back in episode four, and we're going to have some in-depth conversations with some of the most knowledgeable and accomplished Ted Bundy authors and researchers to ever dig into the mind and crimes of Ted Bundy. And that includes a conversation with E.J. Hammond, who did so much of the writing and research for this season. She's going to talk about what it's like to be a self-confessed Bundy file. So you don't want to miss the conclusion of our Ted Bundy coverage. Now, if you like the show, please take the time, go out, give us a five-star rating. This goes a long way towards helping other people find the show. And if you want to find us on social media, we're on Twitter at Criminology Pod, or you can find us on Facebook by searching for Criminology Podcast. You can also join the podcast discussion group on Facebook by searching for Criminology Podcast Discussion and Fans. 
So we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. 